Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Peterson Toscano is guest host today for Spirit in Action. You see, just about everything that Peterson does is golden, and sometimes there is just such a super abundance of gold that we have to supplement his usual every three months guest hosting. So Peterson and Citizens Climate Radio are featured on today's program. But first, I wanted to mention to you about funding for our shows. Even though we run bare bones, it does take some support from our listeners to make our Norton Spirit Radio programming thrive. So we have a major fundraising event toward the end of each calendar year, which means now. A lot of folks and organizations do that, and I certainly don't want to steal their thunder. But I do want to point out that the purpose of Spirit in Action is to lift up the voices of those doing world healing work. So when you support Northern Spirit Radio, you're helping all these folks we're interviewing, providing them access to high-quality radio podcast publicity. If you look at the programs we've done for Spirit in Action this past year, you'll see a wealth of people doing great work and you'll see the way we can help them in that work. So when you donate to us, you are in fact providing support to them. If you can help, great. If you can't, that's fine too. We appreciate your listening and maybe helping us in other ways. Whatever the case, thank you. And with that out of the way, I want to turn you over to Peterson Toscano, today's guest host, and he'll tell you about his wonderful guests for Citizens Climate Radio. All yours, Peterson. Thank you, Mark, for creating this platform for folks like me to share our work. And thank you for listening to Spirit in Action. So often, ideas for programs come from unexpected places. It was over five years ago at a climate conference in Florida, I met a university professor who taught classes in the field of hospitality. Florida, with its many theme parks, hotels, and attractions, well is kind of the epicenter of the hospitality field. We chatted about the skills hospitality professionals need to be successful in their field, like problem-solving skills and the ability to anticipate what strangers need. They also need to learn how to help customers with small children. Adults and children can feel overwhelmed, overtired, and unable to make quick decisions in Florida. Hearing him talk, it reminded me of accounts I read of Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Many people were suddenly unhoused, desperate, frightened, and needing immediate help. Ever since then, I've been thinking of hospitality in a time of climate change. In a moment, you will hear two experts from two very different fields sharing insights and wisdom about the risks and the rewards of extending hospitality to friends and strangers. Later in the episode, you will also hear from author Marissa Slavin. She writes climate fiction for young adults. In 2018, she published Code Blue. The book was a success, in large part because of the riveting plot and the fresh ways she wrote about climate change and extreme weather. A master storyteller, Marissa is back to tell us about the sequel, Code Red. 
and she reads an excerpt from this new novel. We also hear an original play written by Hannah Cormick for Climate Change Theater Action. Dream, Remember, as performed by Aram Mitchell, will take you into a future ritual that is layered with feeling, images, and possibilities. But first, we take a deep dive into the topic of hospitality. Living in a world with stronger and more frequent extreme weather events, giving and receiving hospitality, well, it's becoming the new normal for humans. We often don't welcome people or we don't welcome what's happening in this world around us because we think we don't have enough. I'm not sure that that's a helpful starting place. That's Jamie R. Reeves, an American public theologian in the UK. And at the moment, split my time between uh, freelance work and then at Sarum College based in Salisbury as the coordinator for the Center for Encountering the Bible. My work is intersection between theology and public issues. I tend to narrow those things down to religion and conflict or conflict and peace. Gender, as a woman and working in the Bible, gender is a pretty easy thing to do and needs to be done. And then hospitality and memory, collective memory usually, because that then fuels conflict or peacemaking, and it's connected in that way. In June 2019, at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina, with enthusiastic crowds cheering nearby, I met with Jamie. Now, some people hear the word hospitality, and they imagine putting out cookies for guests. <laughs> yeah, tea and tea and biscuits in the UK, sweet tea and good barbecue or something like that in the American South, which is where I'm originally from. It's not about being nice. It might be about being kind, but sometimes the kind thing is the telling the truth. And so the relationship between hospitality and truth, I think, is really important, really useful and necessary. Maybe the most useful link is around the myth of scarcity versus abundance. We have operated in the world being oriented toward a, an ethic of scarcity. There's just not enough to go around. And a lot of our climate change conversation is there's not enough to go around to, right? Jamie will share with us some of the theories she considers as she researches, writes, and speaks about hospitality. Adding to this discussion, I also chatted with Dr. Natasha DeJarnette. I'm an assistant professor of environmental medicine in the Christina Lee Brown Envirome Institute at the University of Louisville, where I'm building a research portfolio on the effects of extreme heat on cardiovascular disease. She is also a professorial lecturer at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. She serves on four different boards, including serving as the chair of the governing board of Citizens Climate Education. Dr. DeJarnette is our most frequent guest on Citizens Climate Radio, and for an important reason. As a public health expert, she reveals for us the many risks of extreme weather. For me, hearing all of the negative and uncovering, you know, all of the, the negative ways that things can impact health, for me, that inspires me. That makes me say, there's a place for me to fit in because it does this, and this, and that, and that, and that, and that. But that can be very overwhelming for people. So I appreciate that you focus on solutions and what we can do. All right, let's hear about these dangers that are upon us and then the ways that we can promote hospitality 
empathy, and policies that protect lives and improve public health. We have increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and this is increasing surface water temperatures because heat is being trapped below. These increased surface water temperatures are making the occurrence and severity of extreme weather events more frequent and more extreme. We look back over recent years, 2017 was a record-breaking year for hurricanes here, with hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria all making landfall in the U.S., and all happening within a very narrow time frame. And then insert 2020. There were more named storms to make landfall on the U.S. than ever. We even reached well into the Greek alphabet for storm naming. So what you're sharing is so important in terms of hospitality because we're seeing that there is an increased need for hospitality when it comes to these extreme weather events and people becoming displaced. And there's quite a bit of displacement. If we look on a global level, on average, 20 million people are displaced and have to move to other countries this year due to climate change. If we just look at the extreme heat aspects of climate change, research estimates that 1 billion or more will be displaced within the next 50 years. In 2018, 16 million people were displaced by global weather-related disasters, and the estimates are that 1.2 million of those were Americans. And then going back even further, we've been seeing these trends for quite some time. In 2014, over 19 million people around the world were forced to be displaced due to natural disasters. And this is according to the Norwegian Refugee Council. And then they also go on to report that people today are 60% more likely to be displaced by a weather-related disaster compared to the 1970s. Because of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, Researchers have a lot of information about how that megastorm displaced people. 1.5 million evacuated before Hurricane Katrina. There were 150 to 200,000 that remained. The data suggests that up to 6,000 households were still displaced a month after Hurricane Katrina, and that shelters at that time were housing 273,000 people. One thing we do know is that the earlier and further that we can evacuate from the storm, the better our mental health outcomes are after a storm. But the storms are extremely stressful. There's illness, there's injury, as I pointed out. Storms increase our risk of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress. There's also other stressors that add to it in the aftermath. There's job loss, there's home destruction, there's even the loss of family and friends. But there's also this disrupted social cohesion where we have this connectedness with our community and we may be uprooted into a new community. For some people, this can impact health through a diminished sense of self. And it's not only storms like Katrina, Irma, and Maria that are displacing people. Sea level rise has forced communities to relocate. Sea level rise projections at a lower risk scenario of 0.9 meters of sea level rise puts 4.2 million at risk 
And at the higher level of 1.8 meters, this could leave 13.1 million affected here in the U.S. We also have wildfires. The November 2018 Woosley wildfires displaced an estimated 182,000 in California. The combined wildfires of 2019 displaced 100,000 people. Extreme heat, a topic we covered last episode, also disrupts lives. From this summer, and we know this has been a unique summer in terms of extreme heat. We had a heat dome that affected the Pacific Northwest. We also had heat advisories along the East Coast near the same time. This was actually reported to be the hottest summer on record. 195 million of 300 million Americans faced dangerously high temperatures in the mainland U.S. And there were under excessive heat advisories during this time. Using hospitality to respond to the threats of extreme heat is becoming a common practice in communities. Churches, community centers, and volunteer groups can play a role. Cooling centers are places where people can go and cool off on a hot day. Often these are public spaces like libraries or maybe even a mall where people may be able to go and find some refuge on a hot day. I feel that this is also an opportunity for churches to be able to open their doors and offer places for people to cool off on a hot day. It can be life-saving. In the absence of being able to be in person in some areas where it's, you know, just not safe at the moment, there's often education that can be offered to protect people that just may not be quite aware that we are in certain situations like an extreme heat event or that there is a threat of a situation coming. I think that churches can help shore up that with education to their congregants as well as informing them and even maybe building support systems. In New York City, there's a program that's called Be A Buddy. And Be A Buddy helps to ensure that older adults who are often more socially isolated receive information that they need when there is a threat of extreme weather, extreme heat, something of that nature, ensuring that someone reaches out to them. So they have a buddy that reaches out to them and makes sure that they know. And I can certainly see churches having many opportunities to do something like that. And the connections are already established between many members together. Jamie Reeves shares examples of ways congregations are responding. For instance, to address the myth of scarcity, she tells the story of a church service in New York City. Through the Eucharist, or the communion service, sharing bread and wine, the congregation learned an important lesson. There was probably a hundred people in in the worship service, and they did Eucharist with one slice of white bread. And that was all that was there. And they took the smallest amount, but enough to have Eucharist, and that one slice served the entire congregation. There is enough here. You don't need to be taking the half the whole freaking loaf. There's enough here for us if we pay attention to what everybody else needs. In a famous story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, 
they started with just two loaves and a few fishes. Feeding all these people, many interpret it as Jesus miraculously multiplying the food through special powers. Jamie offers another interpretation, though, a miracle of sharing. People had food on them. They just weren't going to pull it out in front of everybody else at the time. And so once he oriented them towards sharing, they were like, oh, well, yeah, actually, I've got this in my bag, too. You know, and like, and there ended up being enough for everybody because they had it all squirreled away for themselves. In a time of growing displacement, Jamie points to examples of extreme hospitality. The specific work that I do is around what I call protective hospitality. And so that's the provision of sanctuary or refuge to the threatened other, often at risk of the host. I guess technically protective hospitality would homeless shelter sort of situation in the sense of you're creating safe space for someone to come and live and, and sleep. But there's an element of risk to the host that I, th- I think we often don't really spend a lot of time thinking about. And that keeps people from practicing that work because obviously the risk that's involved. Within the work that I do around hospitality, and I do interfaith work, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and how those three traditions formed their theology and their ethic of hospitality around this is what God has called us to do. The ultimate thing is being around love of neighbor, around protecting the ones who are marginalized, the ones who have been abused and neglected, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. And within the Hebrew Bible, the 26 lines of do this because you were once strangers in Egypt. You know how it feels. This is what you need to do. To do this type of work, Jamie suggests we need to shift our thinking and our default response. In order to practice hospitality, you need to be oriented toward what Philip Halley, who's a Christian ethicist, called a yay-saying ethic versus a nay-saying ethic. So what he was doing, he researched communities who put themselves at risk for others during the Second World War traditionally called rescuers during the Holocaust, folks who hid or helped Jews escape and political prisoners. And there was a different orientation for communities who did that work as opposed to those who didn't. So what was it about Christian communities who put themselves at risk for others versus the ones who supported the regime? He said it was a yay-saying versus a nay-saying ethic. And so yay-saying ethic, he would say, is, an, is a default yes toward the other as opposed to a no. So it's a default abundant ethic. We have enough. We will help you. An ethic that is oriented towards dignity, preservation of life, wholeness, well-being. It is resistant to the status quo and it requires action. And the other thing that I think is really interesting, particularly in sort of biblical studies work, is he says it's less hygienic, quoting that. And so when we kind of talk about action and ideology we're talking about purity in a lot of ways and like we don't want to get tainted by you know being with folks who are different and he was saying that those who are practicing hospitality are going to get dirty and they're open to getting dirty because they know that that is the higher calling is to preserve life and dignity and saying yes and being oriented toward the other Jamie flips the script by using negative terms to describe life-saving practices I also talk about hospitality as contagion. We use dirty and tainted as a negative term. But in this way, it's kind of when you experience it and it's meaningful for you, that you then go tell other people. It becomes viral. It's this experience of being able to be changed. And that tainting is is the changing, the 
the dirtiness of it that God has called us to get our hands dirty, to get involved, to not sit on the sidelines and stay clean. In pursuing solutions and promoting hospitality, Dr. Dejarnet stresses that we look deeply at how extreme weather affects us all, but differently. For the communities that are at greatest threat to climate events, the Prevention Institute lists the following policies, practices, and procedures that have produced inequities in the built environment that may leave certain populations more susceptible. That includes segregation and thereby redlining, the interstate highway system, divestment from the urban core, investment in suburban areas, the siting of hazardous land use, and then also the foreclosure crisis. Understanding the root of barriers that we have to equity, I think that is important that we think around that framing when we discuss and identify solutions, understanding that there are those challenges. Some of the solutions incorporate the natural world into our cities and towns. They include transforming neighborhoods so they're cooler and therefore more hospitable. Green infrastructure can help manage floods, can help absorb rainfall, can prevent water from overflowing our wastewater systems and our roadways and our homes. But green infrastructure can help manage these situations. For example, rain gardens. For example, using permeable pavements that can absorb water. Green cover plants to replace non-absorbent land cover like concrete. Dr. Dijonet is part of a research initiative to build green infrastructure and community while improving public health. We have the Green Heart Initiative at University of Louisville, and it's a partnership between University of Louisville, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the Nature Conservancy, and several additional organizations. I like to say that we are planting trees for healthier air, but we're actually planting more than trees. We're planting shrubs. We're increasing residential greenness. This is a randomized controlled trial where trees are the intervention. We are looking at health and air quality before planting the trees. So that's been taking place this summer. And then we will continue to assess health and air quality after planting the trees. Because we're a research institution, we're certainly very connected with understanding the health impacts. So we're able to do this as a randomized controlled trial with nature being the intervention. I've recently been awarded a diversity supplement through the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to assess health disparities within the green heart population, but also add in air temperature monitoring to this initiative. And air temperature is such an important part of understanding air quality. So we expect that temperatures may be lowered where the tree planting is increased. And then we also are going to further investigate the toxic stress linked with health disparities, namely discrimination, to see if the toxic stress of discrimination may modify the, uh, the relationship that we know exists between air pollution exposures and cardiovascular outcomes. So how perceptions of discrimination may affect that risk. As I listen to public theologian Jamie R. Reeves and public health expert Dr. Natasha DeJarnette, I have a clearer picture of hospitality in a climate-changed world. For me, that means being aware of the diverse needs that exist in my community and being available to help in a crisis. 
That might also mean providing financial support or time volunteering at emergency shelters, food pantries, and cooling centers. It's about pursuing creative solutions that build community and and create spaces for people to find a refuge for both short and long periods of displacement. It's about seeing a need and being willing to disrupt my own life, my own plans, even my own home. Maybe this conversation challenges you to be more engaged in your own community. As the impacts of climate change increase, so will the need for hospitality, resilience, and community building. One resource you can look at is the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit. You can find it at toolkit.climate.gov. That's toolkit.climate.gov. And to learn about how you can start or join a climate resilience hub, visit climatecrew.org. That website again, climatecrew.org. I will have these resources and more in our show notes. Just visit our blog at citizensclimatelobby.org. Marissa Slavin cracks open the pages of her new book, Code Red, and helps us experience the near future. You will also hear Dream Remember, an original play written by Hannah Cormick. About the play, Cormick wrote, In the age of capitalism, dreaming and hope have become subversive acts. The status quo is adept at clipping the wings of dreams and squashing fantasies making it hard for us to imagine the tangible path between where we are and where we want to get to. But there are fragments we do know. Ideas that ignite our hearts or fill us with unexpected hope. There are clues from the past, from earlier decades, or centuries ways of living, or indigenous ways of living. And there are fundamental values that we want to live by. Maybe... Time is a bit fluid, and there are lots of clues to what we are yearning for, hiding inside our bodies, our unvoiced wishes, our ancestral sensations that can be remembered. She says she wanted to create a ritual to allow sacred space for that dreaming and remembering, and to feel the potency of imagining and moving forward into unknown territories as a collective act. You will hear the play right after the break. Stay tuned. Time for a little station break here on Spirit in Action. Then we'll get right back to Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio. I started out the program by telling you about how you could go to the northernspiritradio.org webpage to sustain us. But I also want to mention all the great broadcasters and podcasters who also deserve your support. Of course, Peterson and the parent organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, are big. But also remember the many stations, a bit more than 40, who carry our programming and lots of other locally infused and relevant shows, both news and music. 
CCR, CCL, your local community radio stations, and Northern Spirit Radio are not in it for the money, but our efforts are energized by your support, both in terms of money and of energy. Let's head back to Peterson, and you'll get a chance to meet Aram Mitchell and Marissa Slavin. Back to Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson. As part of Climate Change Theater Action 2021, I'm thrilled to share with you Dream Remember by Hannah Cormick. It's performed by Aaron Mitchell from the BTS Center in Portland, Maine. The BTS Center promotes spiritual leadership for a climate-changed world. We've come, gathered at the side of the lake, and my toes are sinking into the coffee-black sludge. It's cold and thick. It stains our skin in tiny speckles up our calves, itching with small insects. Holding each other's hands, or wherever we hold each other with whatever we hold with, I think the line stretches around the whole two-mile perimeter, a full circle. Elsewhere, other gatherings dip their feet in the scratch of sand before the curling lip and salt tang of waves or pebbles that push into the muscles of your souls with insistence and enduring grace or jagged edges that spur your step into the water. The whole planet over, we gather. Just like us who encircle this lake to enact a ritual of dreaming. No, remembering. Remembering forward to what has not yet happened. A tender tightening against my palm. We've begun. The very edge of the water was sharp as an intake of breath. And the thick silt caresses our toes as it melts off under the lapping water's tongue. Water that gripped around the ankle, pulling gently because we lingered still in the shallow. No one leading, leading each other, led by the lake. So many of us, side by side. The submerged part of your body is gliding slow into sinking. And the other part of you still rising upwards in this world of above listening for the tinsel rustle and chimes of the birch leaves quivering in a channel of wind, trying to catch the half-whispers, a tuning to the language you had forgotten, you'd never yet learnt, but which that dreaming part of you still half, almost, remembers. Don't you feel that? Like something, maybe not your own memory, Maybe something older? I don't know how to name it. The language was stolen, but I feel it. You do too. We feel it in the way the old order didn't fit. And our spirits twitched and struggled against it. We recognize when a thought approaches it and tears and laughter suddenly spill into your mouth out of nowhere. We sense it, like something glimpsed by the back of your head, whispered from behind the curve of your ear. Together, dreaming back or remembering forward at the edge of history, 
outside the border of imagination. Listen. 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 Step deeper. I chose this lake because it's from my homeland, by the farmhouse, in the forest, on the land where I was born. I chose this lake because I was thinking of learning what wild things are carried in my blood that are not disease but memory and ritual. To remember the scent of pine needles and the taste of birch tree flesh, the sweet blood of cloudberries, the comfort of the color of snow at the blue hour. I'm thinking of growing out my roots. I'm thinking of letting the other roots reach in through my walls, opening cracks through which to connect. Knee-deep in the water, I try to shuffle off my fear of cliché with some half-joke about middle-aged white man reconnecting with ancestry. A young Penobscot woman to my right in the circle, in a calmness that lands so gently that cuts right through the clamor of my shame, says, that's the colonizer's narrative. My embarrassment doesn't disappear, but it falls back like an echo on the shoreline. Except that on the way to where we're going, I will appear foolish. That as someone with colonizer's blood mingled in my veins, there's no graceful way out of this place. Go through the mud. You will slip and fall, except the dirt on your face. Some might be graceful, but not you. But keep going, stepping forward, stepping with whatever you step with. Because some of us in the circle don't walk. You don't walk well or far, and you leave your wheelchair at the edge of the lake, not because you don't still need it. There's no miracle story here, except the miracle that your body is as welcome in this lake as any other body, that your crutches help lift you in the water. And when they cease to, that You're supported by the multi-tangle of arms of people around you and the lake itself that we all together, and with the lake too, support anybody however it needs to be supported. And holding each other up doesn't feel heavy at all. It feels like an embrace. Because there is no right way to be in the lake, except to be in it together. We go deeper. The shock of the water surprises sounds out of our mouths. We start to remember, or (laughs) we forget to forget. Snippets of memory dreams jumping into the air. You say your granddaughter has gone to Unity to study Earth Advocacy. You say the glyphosate reparations built organic gardens in the schoolyards in Aristic County. How the boots of your lover 
tread dust from the solar farm through the house. There's a moment where I think about turning back. I wonder if other people linger on the shore or didn't come out here in the middle of the forest to walk into a cold lake with no purpose. Except, what? That's the colonizer's narrative. That hope must be piecemeal, small, achievable, and fully laid out as a plan before you embark. Keep stepping forwards. The cold is lifting our voices out of us, unexpectedly at our hips. The woman next to me starts laughing hysterically from the cold water. In between shrieks of laughter, she starts to spill out words about how she'd always wanted to keep bees, how she now tended to hives built in her apartment complex garden, free housing pods built during the climate refugee reform that sat near a ring of blossoming fruit trees that the bees would dance around each morning, and in spring she'd sit with her coffee, watching the slow dance of them visiting the flowers, dipping heads up to their waists in yellow pollen dust, and in summer the hot smell of the fruit in the evening would be full in the air. As small children climbed and clung in the branches, throwing small fruit down to each other as they taught each other words from their own languages for the sweet-tasting gifts, exchanging taste and tongue. A whisper ripples down the line. A child over on the eastern flank of the river has begun talking about universal basic services and the demonetization of labor. A man to the west is remembering the patient's strike, where he and other nurses and unwaged carers helped barricade city intersections, and the sick and injured stared down the unmoving cars. Someone remembers when their company's plastic permit was revoked. There's a secret bubbling to the south about the Robin Hood Rebellion and the billionaire bosses, bankers, and oil barons whose heads were hoisted high and their accounts drained dry. Someone remembers the rewilding of Boston and the surprise glimpses of the plants and predators that reclaimed the de-asphalted streets. And land, return, and reparations running swift alongside the language reclamation when we scrubbed the scars off our maps and gave the old names back to the land. And then we slowed down. Because progress doesn't mean speed. And the wind blows around us quick like change. But our movement as a species through the day, we can slow all that right, right down. We slowed down. We took time. We gave time. We spent our attention, our care. We no longer counted cost using money. We no longer counted growth using money. An older woman that I think I maybe recognize, her shawl billows up around her shoulders in the water, and she's singing the wounds of the land. To grieve what was taken, stolen, hurt, 
to grieve the trees empty of lichen, the snow empty of the reindeer's tread. I don't see those things, but I feel like they are pieces of meat carved out of my own heart. Feels like the hurt was done to me too. And we all recognize the grief we feel for the earth that we've pretended was an empathy, but was really a very intimate and personal heartbreak, a betrayal we each felt, we each were harmed by, and reaching through the water, we place our hands on the cracks in each other's hearts, and we cry together. Salt water flowing into the cold, freshwater lake, because both our hope and our grief must be supported together. And water under our noses with those gasoline-tasting coughs when you almost inhale. Do you remember what's beneath in the dark water under your feet? When it felt like the whole sky had been poured down into the mouth of the mountain and you lay cradled in the serene vastness at first it seemed uncomfortable, but it's not uncomfortable, just different. We held each other and stepped forward, trying to dream, trying to remember. You talked about the solar farm dust on your lover's boots. Now it is time for the art house. Writer Marissa Slavin is back with us. In 2019, we featured her in episode 33 to talk about her young adult climate-themed novel, Code Blue. Now Marissa is back with the sequel, Code Red. She was inspired by her daughter to write this series of eco-fiction thrillers, where a teenage girl and her friends battle climate change. I sat down with her to talk about the new book and to hear her read an excerpt. Code Blue and the, the sequel Code Red take place in the not-too-distant future. I don't in either of the books sort of specify an exact year because I, I think when you do that, it's easy to then pass that year and go, oh, well, it doesn't look like it looked in the book, so they got it wrong or whatever. In my mind, it's sometime in the not-too-distant future in the next few decades, I would say. The world-building situation is that Climate change disasters have definitely gotten worse than they are now. A lot more natural disasters, a lot more issues with drought and illness and climate migration. So all of that has gotten worse. But the one hopeful thing in the world that I've created is that all the major countries in the world have agreed that the climate crisis is, in fact, a crisis and that they've all dedicated a significant amount of their resources, both their, their financial resources, their intellectual resources, 
to, to trying to do everything they can to mitigate the effects of the climate emergency and to, to try and turn things around. Code Blue takes place on the East Coast of the United States. The East Coast has shifted inwards, however, on the continent. Cities like Boston and New York are all underwater. In Code Blue, the main character, Atlantic, who goes by Tick Brewer, and her mother live on a, in a small cottage near what's called the Eastern Edge, where there's a large fence that sort of goes all along the coastline to uh, keep people from wandering out into dangerous waters and, and to keep large debris that's now in the water because of all the sunken cities from coming inland. And in both of the books, there are some big storms that are, I guess storms are so big, they just have a number, like it's a four or it's a five. People's lives are very much dictated and upended quickly by these storms. You know, part of the recognition, the mitigation of understanding that because of the climate crisis, these storms are happening, are going to continue to happen and have severity is that there's a lot more sort of systems put in place for people to emergency evacuate, to emergency have safe places to go. There's at least systems in place to, as much as possible, predict, warn, and prevent death, if not property loss, related to the storms. It's imaginative, it's creative, it's speculative, but at its heart, what makes a good novel a good novel is the character and the character development and, of course, the plot, which is there as mm -hmm. well. Your main character, Tick, has been through a lot and has learned a lot. She is so much more confident, I see, in this second book than in the first book. She's learned a lot of things in such a short time. She was very nervous, it seemed, a lot in the first book, but she seems a lot more courageous. What what changes did you feel were important to, to bring about in this short time period, just a few months? What are the changes you worked into her character? Well, I think you've hit on something really important. I mean, even though it's a short period of time, Tick had some very formative experiences in that short time. Certainly the change in her family's circumstances were sort of the most impactful on her. But I think in addition to that, realizing that the world is a lot scarier place than she had always believed it to be, because prior to that, she had felt less empowered. And now after what she's been through in Code Blue, she sees that the world is scary, but she has some ability to, to make a change in that. The thing that hasn't really changed for her, and, and she's 17 years old, and so 17-year-olds are going through a lot of changes anyways, even without everything else. <laughs> but the thing that hasn't changed in Code Red is she's still quite impulsive. She's trying to moderate her impulsiveness more sometimes better and sometimes not as well, but she's at least recognized that in herself as something that, that needs work. Empowered but impulsive. Grief is still a feature of your work and dealing with grief. Why is that important to your work and, and to who you are as a writer? 
Well, I am a palliative care doctor, have been for the last 30 years. I feel very comfortable exploring the space of grief and loss. It's something that we need to all get more comfortable with as a society and feel comfortable talking about. I think there's a lot of what's now being identified as well as climate grief. And I really see an intersection there from all the work I've done in palliative care and grief work and what's happening with climate and the environment. There's first off just, you know, that recognition that things are not how we wish or want them to be. And whether that's in a very personal health situation or family situation, or whether it has to do with the climate and the world at large, the first thing we have to do is like recognize it and name it, and only then can we begin grieving. You have a reading for us. So this reading is from the middle of the book. Tick is on her winter break, and she is traveling with her uncle Al, who we met in uh, the first book, Code Blue, his grandson, whose name is Danny, traveling from New England out to Montana. So they're driving out that way when they're in the truck. There's a sudden loud thunk on the roof of the truck that makes me jump in my seat. What was that? Danny asks. But before Uncle Al can answer, there are more hits to the roof of the truck, and now we can see them on the hood as well. Chunks of ice are hitting us and bouncing off. It's a sudden, inexplicable hail. Danny slows way down and pulls over onto the shoulder of the road. We can't hear one another now over the re relentless clatter. After a few minutes, the hail slows down and tapers off. I stare out at the flat landscape around us. Nothing but dirt and scrub here anyway, so nothing was really damaged by the hailstorm. A second later, my heart is in my throat as a black semi speeds past us and the truck shimmies. Idiot, Uncle Al says. Figures it's an agronite truck, Danny says. A what, I ask? Freaking agronite. It's a giant farm supplier, Danny explains. And you don't like them because of their truck drivers, I asked. Among other things, Uncle Al says, patting my knee. Danny, let's get back on the road, huh? Danny starts driving again, crunching the rapidly melting ice under the tires. No one says anything for a while. We're all shook up by it. Oh, shit, Danny says, breaking the silence. Look over there. He points to his left, out across the plains. See it? Is that what I think it is? I asked, staring in awe. Yeah, it's a twister, all right, Uncle Al answers. Danny says nothing, his jaw clenched tight. In the massing clouds, a circle is swirling and spinning and starting to slip down from the sky. Like a bony finger, it points at the earth far below and stretches, trying to reach it. Should we turn back, I ask? Can we outrun it, Danny asks at the same time, still driving forward. Pretty hard to outrun a tornado, Uncle Al says. <laughs> I can keep going. <laughs> no, I think that's good. I think that's a good yeah. cliffhanger. It's like, okay. <laughs> Learn more about Marissa Slavin and her books through her publisher, stormbirdpress.com. 
That's stormbirdpress.com. And you can follow Marissa Slavin on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Marissa Slavin. Oh, and check out the Code Blue Book TikTok account. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me as I shared with you some of the best of Citizens Climate Radio. You can hear our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a new episode every month. See a full listing of our shows on the blog at citizensclimatelobby.org. That's citizensclimatelobby.org. You can hear standalone versions of The Art House at artistsandclimatechange.com. To learn more about Climate Change Theater Action, visit climatechangetheateraction.com. Aaron Mitchell, who performed Dream Remember, is part of the team at the BTS Center. They regularly offer engaging and very well-designed online programs promoting spiritual leadership in a climate change world. Learn more at thebtscenter.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Spirit in Action. Now, back to Mark Helpsmeet. Thanks again, Peterson, for your awesome work and for your awesome you. All you listeners have been enriched by Peterson Citizens Climate Radio work today, but don't forget to check out Peterson's other work, like his Bubble and Squeak podcast, his plays, his LGBTQ-friendly Bible Hour, and more. We've got a link to petersontoscano.com on northernspiritradio.org, so you can get there easily and see the riches. I hope we can all do our bit for world healing, and Peterson is certainly doing this work abundantly. Join him and all of these other workers for the world in making this place better. But certainly, don't forget to join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo of our healing.